Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. Uh, you may have noticed when you walked in uh, today that there was no handout in the back. That's, that's my fault. I apologize for that. But if you're the note-taking type, uh, know that we're going to have two big sections here this morning in the call to unity. We're going to look at it as the beauty of unity and the cost of unity. The beauty of unity and the cost of unity. Now, as I've been preparing for these sermons on a life that is called, looking at the various callings that we all have as believers in Christ Jesus, I've noticed a trend in each one of these that we've gone through. The trend is they're all difficult. They're all hard. They all require us to think less of ourselves and more of Jesus and the need for his spirit but not simply for us just to think more of Jesus, to like we just idealize him in our head, but to be filled by his spirit, to be obedient to his ways, and to trust him in the various trials of life. The call to a holy life, the call to love, the call to justice require that I think less of myself and more of you. It requires that we think less of ourselves and more of our community and our neighbor. And this is biblical. Philippians 2, uh, verses 4 through 8 says, Let each of us look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. There are a lot of people with a lot of solutions for our lives and for our culture. But the good news of Jesus calls us to something that seems, will seem counterintuitive to the way that we would assume is the best way. Not to defeat our enemy, but to love our enemy. Not to persecute those who persecute us, but to pray for them. The callings of the Christian life to love, justice, holiness, and peace, they are difficult. And the call to unity, which we'll see today, is a difficult calling for us because it, re it requires us to remain in unity, to have humility and love, to grow deeper in Christ Jesus, and to be continually changed by his spirit. Now, there are a lot of different ways that we could dissect the call to unity this morning, uh, and we've done a few of those. Uh, we could look at um, the four Ds that we've talked about before. There are things that we die for, things that we divide for, things that we discuss, things that we decide. There are reasons, there are legitimate reasons that people break fellowship with churches. We could approach unity like the five steps toward unity or the three main unity killers, but there is one particular psalm uh, that is dedicated to the goodness of unity. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. But before we read our passage, I want to call our minds to two things that the gospel calls us to, to kind of give us this groundwork before we jump into the passage this morning. The first thing is this. It's the same one from last week. You might remember it. The gospel calls us to this, that every aspect of our lives is in submission to Lord Jesus. There is nothing that submission to Jesus in his kingdom does not influence. From our work ethic to the way we spend our money, from our private lives to our public lives, submission to the Lord Jesus should be shaping how we view every person, every relationship, every decision that we make within unity of the church. The second thing that the gospel calls us to is the gospel unites us to one another. And this is what's fascinating in Ephesians where Paul says this about the death of Jesus. He says, For he himself 
is our peace, who has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, depth, and width of the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Christ's death unites us as a church to experience this together. So this is the two things that unity in the gospel calls us to. So if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open up to Psalm 133. It is three short verses. It'll be on your screen. Uh, I will read this for us. Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the beard, on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, this short psalm is packed with vivid imagery to display the goodness of unity. The city of Jerusalem, uh, you may know, is situated on a hill. So as pilgrims would come three times a year or for Passover, they would all ascend up towards Jerusalem. And there are various psalms that are the psalms of ascent that people would recite or sing or say as they are working towards Jerusalem. Now, this particular psalm also has a visual aid with it. I think I have a picture on the screen. Now, imagine the city of Jerusalem when it swells to two or three times the amount of people on any given day as all of these people are ascending up to Jerusalem reciting these psalms of ascent. They are unified together as they are reciting these psalms, praying these psalms, singing these psalms. I think there's one more picture. It is a very vivid and tangible experience that these men and women would have as they're working towards Jerusalem. A very real call to unity. Now, a few years ago, uh, a friend and I went to a Saints game, and it had been the first one that I'd been to in a while. Uh, so you kind of forget the experience of unity within a stadium of 80,000 people cheering for the same thing. Now, people will use words like... Uh, the crowd was electric or there was just an energy that you could feel in the crowd or sometimes when things go bad, you could say you felt the momentum shift. And those are weird things to say unless you're there and you actually feel it. You feel that energy or that excitement or even the momentum or the energy shift. Now before the game started, there was a moment that happened that I wasn't expecting. So they've already done the pledges and uh, sung the songs and they're bringing the flag back off the field, and then all of a sudden the stadium goes dark. And you just see all the cell phones kind of light, light up around the stadium. And then there's one beam of spotlight that hits Drew Brees as he's running out to midfield, and he has like 
This sounds silly. Yes. This imaginary spear that he throws into the ground. And then all at once, all 80,000 people start chanting, Who that? Who that? Who that say they're going to beat them saints? And they say it again, Who that? Who that? Who that say they're going to beat them saints? But it's not just one person saying it. I mean, it is 80,000 people saying it in unison, screaming it at the top of their lungs. Now, there is. Unless you're there, like, just be retelling the story. I, I can't share or I can't give you the emotion of, of what it was, but 80,000 people screaming in unison, I mean, it goes down deep to your bones. You're ready to run out on that field yourself. I mean, I, I, I'd get destroyed, but I mean, the chant of the crowd, may, I mean, it gives you this energy. Now consider this psalm of ascent of hundreds of thousands of pilgrims going to Jerusalem for a like cause to worship their Lord. As they sing these psalms of ascent, as they sing them with their brothers, how good and pleasing it is when brothers dwell in unity. I can tell you, it's a fun and pleasing experience when saints fans dwell in unity and they're screaming all out together. But how much better it is when brothers dwell in unity. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in in unity, if you think about it, we are on a similar ascent. Christian, we are one day closer to heaven. We are one day closer to seeing Christ Jesus. And as we gather together, as we sing the songs that we did this morning, we are on a similar pilgrimage of ascent to see Jesus one day. Why is it good that brothers dwell in unity? It's good when we are unified in the right things. Now, we talked about things that we die for. These are things that are non-negotiables. Things like Jesus Christ uh, being the only way for sinners to get to heaven. Ephesians 2 says this, but because of God, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised up Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So there is a sense that all of us who are in Christ Jesus are seated with him. We are protected in Christ Jesus. And so we all together can, like Kobe said, we can sing, it is well with our soul because it has been made well through Christ Jesus. We have a similar psalm of ascent as we march forward in this life. There is a wonderful blessing in this unity in Christ Jesus together. My sister and I, uh, we had the really wonderful gift of parents who were committed to each other for life. Now, one reason that their marriage uh, has been so successful and has continued to be a blessing for their kids and their grandkids is because their marriage operated in unity. It was a decision that they made before they got married that divorce was off the table. Divorce was not an option. Now, this didn't mean that my parents never disagreed. This didn't mean that they never got angry. It didn't mean that their feelings never got hurt. But they were committed to each other in such a way that the marriage came first and not their preferences, which created a unity and love and safety in our home. This meant that they operated under the essentials that they were a team and committed to each other. 
Their disagreements never came in the form of putting one down. Never have I heard my father or my mother come to me and say a crossword about another, about the other. They created such a bond of unity for us, and it created a protection and a safety in our home. There's a story that my mom will tell about Erin when she was about four or five. Uh, mom was getting ready for work, and Erin walks into the room and asks mom for some toy. I don't remember. I don't know what it was, but she asked mom if she can go have this toy, if mom would go to the store and buy it for her. And mom says, no, we don't always get what we want uh, for any reason that we want. Um, we're not going to get that toy right now. And Aaron's response was, that's okay. I'll ask daddy. He'll get me anything that I want. <laughs> now, my mom made sure that she got to dad before Aaron did so that they could be on the same page, that the toy was off the table. But in this way, because divorce, <coughs> excuse me, because divorce was off the table, this meant that a lot of their preferences were also off the table to maintain the unity in the home. This meant that they both had to make sacrifices of their will and their preferences to maintain the unity of the home. Unity provides and creates a beautiful picture of fellowship and commitment. And isn't this what the church is? Isn't this what we are as we gather together, as Paul says in Ephesians, that I'm not my own individual self and you're not your own individual self, but we are now one new humanity in Christ Jesus. Now, we all come from different backgrounds, different experiences, different preferences, but there is a way that as we come together, we lay down our preferences for one another. Preferences that might be small, preferences that might seem big, but the one thing that we're unified under is the lordship of Christ Jesus. This is the one thing that unifies us together. Unity is not without a price. There is a cost to unity, but unity provides a safety and a security a balance and order to our life. I can, I can tell you this, parents, in this room, if you have young children, hear me say this, that my sister and I felt safest in our home when my parents were full of love for one another. My, my sister and I felt safest in our home, not when we got everything that we wanted, not when it was our way or their way, it was when they had unity together. Now, this isn't meant to be a sermon on marriage and unity. However, there's a real reason that Paul compares marriage to the gospel and that our marriages display the gospel and Christ's love for his bride, the church. Marriage is a good gift from God, not because it provides someone to fill your needs, but because it provides so much more. A unified marriage provides stability in your home. A, uni a unified marriage requires sacrifice in the same way. A unified body of believers provides stability in our church. It provides a stability for a community that's broken and lost. When, they, when someone can come into our church that is outside of Christ Jesus or is lost or is broken, but they can come in and see fellowship and love and commitment and unity to one another, it's a good thing. It's a blessing. It provides stability. How often is the church able to go and provide for a community that's broken, whether in ways of resources of money or food or clothing? It is a good and beautiful thing like we talked last week about providing for the widows. It provides stability for our church. Why is it good when brothers dwell in unity? 
Because we are unified in Christ Jesus, it is the will of God to dwell in unity with those in Christ Jesus. For he himself is our peace. He has made two groups, destroyed the barrier, and he's now made them one, one new humanity. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 3. He says, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations. It has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Why is it good when the church dwells in unity? It proclaims the gospel. It proclaims the gospel to the community when we remain in unity. Ephesians 3.10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Through the church, through our unity within the church, through what Christ Jesus has done, it proclaims the gospel. Why is it good to dwell in unity? It is the purpose of Christ Jesus and proclaims his message. When thinking about the Psalms, uh, the Psalms of Ascent, let's remember that these are pilgrims coming from different walks of life, regions, tribes, and they're gathered together for one purpose. During the feasts, they celebrated their common heritage, their redemption from Egypt. They celebrated the encampment around the tabernacle in the wilderness. When we gather as believers on Sunday morning, we celebrate our common adoption in Christ Jesus, our redemption from sin within us and around us, and we celebrate that we are able to draw near to the tabernacle who has been made flesh in Christ Jesus. We celebrate in unity in Christ Jesus. Now the psalmist brings about different benefits of unity. Psalm 133 too says, it is like precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, uh, the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. Now this might sound weird. It, it does sound weird. This is not something that we're used to. Like we're not running around pouring oil on people's heads. But the purpose of oil was for anointing. It's for consecration. To consecrate something is to set it apart or to make it holy. After the high priest's anointing, the priests were considered holy unto God. They were sanctified rather than common. An anointed peace, a priest was set apart to service to God. The anointing was part of a public ceremony designed to impress upon everyone the fact that God had chosen this person for a special task. What was the task of the high priest? To make atonement for sins for the camp of Israel. The oil was prepared uh, for use in the tab tabernacle. It was very fragrant. Uh, you can read about the recipe in Exodus 30. It would be poured on the head, and then it would be an explosion to the senses. Like if you walk into Hobby Lobby around Christmas time, you don't need to know that it's Christmas time. It's going to punch you in the face when you walk into Hobby Lobby. The smell reminds you of what's happening. Now, with the high priest, when this oil is poured on his head, what it is is a sensual reminder for everyone there that their sins are about to be atoned for. Smell is one of the strongest senses that we have in the human body. We can walk into an area and that smell brings us right back decades ago to maybe a friend or a place or a situation. Smell is an incredibly strong sense. The anointing oil to set apart the high priest, it also reminded the people encamped around what was about to take place. 
Second, we see that the illustration that they use, it's like the dew of Mount Hermon. Now, I believe it's Mount Hermon that's the highest mountain in this area. It's over 9,000 feet above sea level, which means that there are various forms of precipitation that happen year-round. There are dry months in the region of Jerusalem from May to October where very little rain falls. But on Mount Hermon, there's an area that's always lush and green with vegetation. For brothers that dwell in unity... It is a fragrant, fragrant, sweet smell that's pleasing, but it's also this lush area that does not dry or burn out. The unity of brothers in Christ Jesus is like the dew of Mount Hermon. During seasons of dryness, difficulty, or drought within our own spiritual lives, unity within the church is a refuge to one another. We come alongside, we rejoice, we reap, we endure, we run the race. We keep looking to Jesus and encouraging one another to do so. This is a wonderful blessing of unity within the church. One of the primary benefits of unity uh, is that we are not made to do the Christian life alone. We are not made to do this without one another, to display the gospel goodness through unity of this church. Not only does unity keep us safe, uh, provide safety and balance for community, it provides safety and balance for us. Unity means that we commit ourselves to good doctrine. It means that we commit ourselves to repentance and forgiveness of sins, to encouragement, to exhortation, to love. Unity provides safety, but it also provides protection. I don't know if you've seen um, the recent sur- survey that Lifeway and Ligonier Ministries have done on the state of theology. And if you've read that report, you'll realize that there is a very serious, um, it's not good, what evangelicals are saying. Here are a few things that they've said. Here's the statement, uh, and the response was to either agree or disagree. The statement was this, does God change? Now we know that the Bible affirms the truth that the triune God is both omniscient meaning that he knows all things, he's immutable, meaning that he does not and cannot change. God, uh, their statement was, does God learn and adapt to different circumstances? U.S. adults, 52% agree. U.S. evangelicals, 48% agree. The statement, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% of evangelicals agree. This is not the gospel. The gospel is that there is one way to Christ Jesus. As we are a church that is committed to theological truth, we provide a protection and a safety for our people that we do not drift into this error. I think one of the saddest and one of the most startling is the statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of evangelicals agree. This, that that is shocking. Now there's a lot more to this report, but these three alone are just, they're devastating. This is a very real reason why we as a church need to be unified in what we gather to. You see, it's really easy uh, if you don't care about holiness, to be unified with anything. If you don't care about holiness, you can be unified with anybody. 
We can go and be unified with 80,000 Saints fans because we don't care about what they do within their private lives. We're just there to cheer for the Saints, right? But holiness is difficult when we care about unity because we need, we, we bind ourselves to the right things, the right doctrines in Christ Jesus, in the scriptures. There is a beauty to unity because it provides safety and protection for us. But there is also a cost to unity. This isn't to say that unity is easy. Much like a marriage where two people become one, so it is, according to the scriptures, that Christ Jesus is doing for us all in a way, that we have all become one in him, a new humanity in Christ Jesus. Listen to how he prays before he goes to the cross. He says, Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Later in the prayer, Jesus asks that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. What's happening here is Jesus is about to go to the cross. And he is about to make a way for us to be one in Christ Jesus. Unity is not easy. But seeing what it cost Christ Jesus, who were we to break it? If it cost Jesus his life, who are we to break unity? Now this doesn't mean that there are never reasons that fellowship is not broken. But what this does mean for us, uh, take Paul in Romans, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus. The goal of Satan and the effects of our sin, our still sinful nature, is that division often comes easier than unity does. When there's things that we don't like or division that comes up, it's just easier for us to restart, easier for us to put our needs above others. It's easier to forget our enemy than to love them. Who is an enemy that you have in your life and why? What makes them your enemy? Are they a believer? What can you do, as Paul says, as much it depends on you to seek to live in harmony with them? Are they not believers? Do you have an enemy that's not a believer? In what way can we display the gospel and how you treat, love, and serve them? Now, there is a small story in uh, the letter to the Philippians that we might miss uh, if we're not careful. But there are snapshots of these stories in Scripture that we don't get the full detail of what's happening, uh, and we might miss them because they have strange names, but these are good examples uh, for the church if we just slow down and listen. Philippians chapter 4 has two feuding sisters. Paul says this, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia, Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, here's what we do know about the story. There's a lot that we don't know, but here's what we do know. We get this insight in the book of Acts about the first start of this church. 
where on the Sabbath, uh, Paul is saying that uh, they went outside to the city gate where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those who was listening was a woman from the city, Tyatira, named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of the household were baptized, she, was invited us, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So Lydia, we know, it's a name uh, that, we, Lydia, we know. She helped start the church. Uh, she aided Paul financially. Uh, and she started the church in Philippi. She started the church that Paul is writing this letter to Philippians. But now we also know that there were a group of women that helped start this church. And that there are women that labored with Paul that now have a disagreement. What we don't know is what their disagreement's about. We don't know what's caused this division among them. But we do know Paul's response, what he exhorts them to. Agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. We don't know why they have divisions, what has caused this feud between them. But we do know that they are called to agree in the Lord. And this makes the rest of chapter 4 from Paul have a punch to it. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We know that as Paul is writing these words, he has two dear sisters in mind. Let your reasonableness be known. Agree in the Lord. There is a cost to unity. Jesus died for it. There is a cost to unity. The scriptures commend it. Now we have spent a lot of time in other sermons. There, there are reasons that people separate. Paul and Barnabas, they go their separate ways. Scripture says they had a sharp disagreement that led them uh, to gospel ministry in different locations. But all of this is to say that we should do whatever we can to agree in the Lord, to maintain unity. Uh, one last story. Uh, General Lee and General Grant. When the Civil War uh, was ending, there's a story about the surrender of the Confederate Army. Uh, General Grant showed an unusual kindness and respect towards General Lee and the Confederates. After the surrender, he allowed General Lee to ride freely in and out of the area. He also allowed the Confederate men to keep their possessions and horses. He gave them food because they were hungry, and he let them go home all undisturbed. General Lee was permanently touched by Grant's kindness. After the war, Lee became the president of Washington College in Virginia. On one occasion, uh, one of his fellow instructors, also a Southerner, began to speak poorly of General Grant to General Lee, assuming that he'd find a sympathetic ear. Lee turned to the man, looked him straight in the eye, and he said, Sir, if you ever again to presume to speak disrespectfully of General Grant in my presence, either you or I will sever this connection to the university. Because General Lee had received such kindness from Grant, he treasured and protected the good name of the one who had showed him kindness. How much more should we, who are unified in Christ Jesus, show one another kindness? When we are unified together in the message of Christ Jesus, it proclaims the gospel and it provides protection for us.
Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray uh, that you help us be a church that is unified uh, in Christ Jesus. Help us to have that mind among the Lord, to remain firm in him, to agree in the Lord and what you have done for us, Christ Jesus. Father, we're not foolish to think that disagreements uh, won't come and feelings won't get hurt. But Father, I pray uh, that we put you uh, above everything else. Help us uh, to labor well together, to let our reasonableness be known, and to be unified in you, Christ Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.